millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and this week we remember and we listen to an in-depth interview with composer Michael Nyman, exploring the story of how, over 40 years ago, the Michael Nyman band were conjured into existence. So I kind of invented this this fake street band. And I've sort of become a much better performer through playing with the Michael Nyman band and through working with these musicians also become a much better composer. On this edition, we'll be hearing from the composer about the daring and complex journey that led to the 40th anniversary of the ensemble back on November the 14th, 2016 in the Barbican Hall. In this concert, you could have heard them perform rarities and some of their best-known work in chronological order to mark the 40th anniversary of their creation. So let's explore the journey from Theatre Foyer to a million-selling film soundtrack, from his groundbreaking work with director Peter Greenaway to his own more recent film essay, War Work. It began at the National Theatre with the help of composer Harrison Burtwistle. I travelled to West London to speak to the composer. Well, I mean, the Michael Nyman band wasn't really formed. I mean, this is, this is the story. Okay, so I was some sort of uh, would-be musicologist when I left the academy in 60, 64, 65. I was also, through another set of circumstances, a friend of Harrison Burwissall and Sandy Gurr and Maxwell Davis. And the musicology didn't continue beyond me leaving King's College London. What did continue was, was the association with new music, and then again through the scene, David Drew, who was a, the the world expert on Kurt Vile and the director of music or director of publishing at Boozy and Hawks in the 60s, I suppose. He phoned me one day in 68 and said that the spectator needed to have a Messiaen piece, Tarangalila Symphony, reviewed, and the music critic then wasn't too keen to do it and wasn't very equipped to do it so they asked so they asked me to do it and I wasn't really equipped to do it either but that started my career as a music critic in in 1968 I don't know whether things still happen like this but that's some <laughs> that's something else you know so I carried on the association especially with Burp Whistle I was a kind of you know I was a kind of in-house writer for him because he didn't write and he didn't really talk very much so I used to <laughs> kind of do articles interviews in his voice so to speak and at this time I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't a composer so 
Um, I'd stopped composing in 1964 because I didn't really want to write the music that Burt Whistlegur, Maxwell Davis, etc., were writing. So 68, I was a music critic. 76, um, Harry had been appointed director of music at the National Theatre. And the first production at the Olivier for the, for the opening was Il Campiello, which is a Goldoni comedy, which is going to be directed by, by Bill Bryden. They had collectively, or whether Harry or whether it was Bill, decided that, that the, the soundtrack, the incidental music, would be made up of, uh, of 18th century gondoliers songs. Mm-hmm. And so he asked me to, since he knew I had been a musicologist, this was 10 years before, to go to the British Museum, Music Library, to get volumes or to transcribe or find or whatever and transcribe gondolier songs that I would then give the transcriptions to him. He would then give the transcriptions to Nino Rota, and Nino Rota would, would write the score, which was fine. So I went to the music library and found a lot of... I didn't find any kind of collections of Venetian gondolier songs, obviously, because it wasn't. there were no Bartogs around. But there were a lot of kind of piano sonatas by early classical composers like Galuppi and people like that that we don't really remember. And, you know, there'll be a sonata called Phoenician Gondoliers Sonata or something. So I kind of copied down all these... So I extracted them from the piano sonatas, copied them down, put them on a, on a sheet of paper or two sheets of paper, gave it to Harry, who then gave it back, gave the sheets back to me because he said that Nino Rota decided, for whatever reason, not to write the soundtrack, not to write the incidental music. So it was going to be me. <laughs> so I, so I, I had this, this, this sheet of tunes, and I don't know how long I had to write this score. And there were, there were two elements. You know, one is uh, how to treat these tunes, but the more important thing was to find an ensemble mm-hmm. to play them. And I sort of did a bit of research, and I discovered the Venetian street music at the time was just kind of rather boring-sounding groups of violinists sort of wandering the streets so I kind of invented this this fake street band mm-hmm. so it was an on-stage band and what I decided and I don't know where this came from was that it would be the loudest possible on-stage band that wouldn't use amplification so the string instruments were kind of rebex rather than violins and the wind instruments were saxophones on the one hand and and kind of shawms and kirtles on the other hand and it was it was based around a group that I think still exists called City Waits, and you know Roddy Skeeping and Lucy Skeeping. When Keith Thompson played every kind of woodwind instrument you can imagine, so I then decided quite irrationally that from being an on-stage band will become an off-stage band, and we will become a concert group. So. But Whistle at that time had already started having concerts in the in the foyer of the National Theatre before, I mean, like six o'clock, you know, people were sort of wandering around drinking. And it was great. So we had the concert, we had the band, but we had no music. <laughs> uh, the only music we had for that ensemble was the Campiello music, which was about sort of 10, 15, 20 minutes. So I then had to sit down and write a whole a whole program of music, a whole kind of concert. And there were some things that I would call arrangements. So I think there was an arrangement of Mac the Knife from the Thrupini Opera. But there were also some arrangements that were 
so extreme that I would call them compositions or something halfway between an arrangement and a composition. So like the Miserere from Il Trovatore, which I remember from seeing when I, when I was a kid and there's Manrico in the prison and there's Leonora. So they kind of exchange kind of arias. And I did a kind of um, sort of funky version of this very straight arrangement and it was very interesting that, that it was an arrangement where it was the power of the sound and the strangeness of the sound of the instrument. And then there was something that, is, that took found music and kind of sampled, basically sampled it. So in, in Ray Don Giovanni, which again is something I remembered from, you know, seeing as a 12 or 13 year old and like the opening of the catalogue song, I kind of analysed it and stripped it down and kind of repeated it kind of line by line and layer by layer and built up this piece that from 25 seconds lasted nearly three minutes. Mm. So that was a genuine composition. But everything was transformed by by the sound of these um, of these kind of unusual instruments used in unusual combinations. And the band that was called the Campiello Band had nothing to do with kind of rock band. It was a band because it was a street band. And we used to travel around southwest England and play on bandstands and, and beaches. So it was, it was strangely the son of the Portsmouth Symphonia and the son of the Scratch Orchestra. So there was a whole kind of cultural mix that was embodied in the Campiello Band that is kind of difficult to unravel now, but I can... I can just about do it. We continue with the demands of director Peter Greenaway, the soundtrack to a sex comedy and the music of Birds and Noses. So that was really the the start of my work as a composer with a resident performing group. And as the music got more ambitious and as something like In Re Don Giovanni became a model for other things so the demands on the players became greater and um, you know I would write string parts that actually couldn't be played on a rebec you know maybe go higher than, than the fingerboard would allow or faster or whatever so so I kind of reenacted the history of instrumental music within the Campiello band in a very short space of time. The Rebecs were replaced by violins. Mm-hmm. Shawms and Kirtles and whatever were replaced by more saxophones. Mm-hmm. Since everything is kind of harmonic and since everything has to do with bass lines and chord changes, the most important instrument was the bass guitar. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember when I first used the bass guitar. I'm sure it's there somewhere. And once you introduce a purely electric instrument, then you can't, you can't have an acoustic band. So then that's why everything became amplified in order to aspire to the condition 
of the bass guitar. And then obviously there were kind of, there were and there are, there's an inbuilt imbalance between having a loud saxophone played by a loud saxophone player like John Hall mm -hmm. and a violin, even when it's played by someone as kind of pushy and powerful as Alex Balanescu, you know, there's no, they can't, there's no competition. So the internal dynamic, the internal balance of the band had to be uh, controlled by electronics, by mixing, basically. I became a composer again in 1976. So Peter Greenaway, who'd been a friend, uh, and we'd kind of toyed with writing, with me writing soundtracks to his films. I had had the very first English synthesizer, the, the VCS3. And then in 1776, he made a film called One to One Hundred, which was kind of quite simply the the, the numbers one to a hundred shot in a random fashion and then assembled in sequence from one to one hundred. And he wanted a, a score from me that, that was musically and conceptually based around one to one hundred. So, so I wrote a piece for him, which he rejected because it was wrong. Then I wrote another another piece. One to 100 was, was a kind of slow drifting series of sustained piano chords um, that were unsuitable for the kind of rigorous structure that, that he wanted for the film. So I wrote him another piece that he used as a soundtrack, but one to 100, then became one of two pieces that was recorded by Brian Eno and released on Obscure Records, Obscure Number Six. So I became a composer and a recording artist in that year and a soundtrack composer for avant-garde films, experimental films. Plus, I also wrote the soundtrack for a film called Keep It Up Downstairs, which was a kind of soft porn piss take of um, Upstairs Downstairs, which was the, um, the kind of Downton Abbey <laughs> of those days. And so, you know, I was in a very interesting place at a very interesting time. Now, the other thing that, that I started in 1976 was teach music in the fine art department of Trent Polytechnic in Nottingham. This was part of a long-standing tradition of, of experimental composers like me, like Gavin Bryars, like Michael Parsons, uh, teaching in, in, art, in art schools, which is a tradition. And one of the things that, that, I, that I did in addition to 
my kind of one-to-one teaching and my general studies lectures, which I think was very interesting. I would sort of stand up and talk about, you know, Steve Reich or, or George Brecht or whatever, was to form a little orchestra, willing musicians amongst the art students who were not very good players. So this is a kind of chamber orchestra version of, of Portsmouth Symphonia. And we did arrangements, of course, and for some reason I wrote a piece called Three Minutes for Bramley six or eight years ago when I was making Witness One, you know, when I became a filmmaker. And I Witness One, which is basically a series of um, animated still photographs that were, that, were sh- that were police photos of gypsies who were put in concentration camps by the French during the Second World War. For some reason, Three Minutes for Bramley uh, seemed to be a very suitable soundtrack, so I arranged it for the Michael Nyman band. So although this version of the piece is, is kind of rather developed from 1976 and there are a lot of saxophone melodies that weren't there in the first place, the harmonic structure is just the same. Mm. So effectively, this is... This is the oldest piece for the Michael Nyman band that exists. So it has to be at the beginning of the concert. And also I want to, it's very easy to kind of sit down and say, okay, here's the music from the Drafts contract. This is what I do. And it's all full of energy and whatever. But I think by putting Witness One at the beginning of the concert, I mean, it's right chronologically and also kind of establishes the kind of filmmaking connection and it's my own filmmaking not me writing music for other filmmakers making films And then Bertlis' song, We Don't Do Very Much, his film The Falls that I think he made in 1979. And he said there were 92 characters, and one character only communicated through birds' names and only communicated through singing birds' names. So he gave me a list of birds and said, you know, here's the, here are the lyrics for this song. I did two things. You know, one is that it became the kind of index of ignorance. So the hundred birds that, that he gave me, I decided don't, only to keep the names of the birds that I never heard of. Since it was only a list, and since there's no kind of greater value for this bird's name over another bird's name, except in the number of syllables it contained, I decided that everything should be sung on one note. The piece kind of develops of it of its of its own accord. Each each instrumentalist has a has a theme that grows from one or two notes to mm-hmm. ten notes or whatever. And it's not only an interesting song in and in the fact that, that it exists in the falls as a film performance again by Lucy Skeeping, who was in the Campiello band. But also is the beginning of a series of songs whose whose texts are made up of kind of just word lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a piece called Noseless Song that I wrote in um, 
one of the mid 80s which is a list of descriptions of a, of the nose of a character who walks into a town in one of the stories that's inserted in Lawrence Stern's Tristan Shandy and then the most recent list song is called Shakespeare's Sexless Song which consists of a, a list of words that Shakespeare used for fucking uh, arranged alphabetically <laughs> uh, so that's kind of interesting Next, we speak about his specific path through connecting image and music, the sampling of Mozart, and quickly fast-forwarding through a string quartet and an opera and arriving at his first song cycle. What was it like at the time, you know, as we move through the 80s? Because your music must have, through film, been heard by an audience you never really imagined. Yeah, well, yeah, and also his films were seen by an audience that he never imagined. Because everything from 1976 from 1 to 100, through the falls, Vertical Features remake were seen by limited audiences. So, you know, the films would be, his films would be shown at the NFT, uh, Walk Through H, whatever, wouldn't have, would not have a kind of huge audience. And then he sort of cracked it with Johnson's contract because it was, it was a feature film, a fiction film, it, it more importantly used actors. So the Drossens contract kind of hit some kind of zeitgeist in the same way that, that the piano did sort of mm. 10 years later. But musically, he used In Re Don Giovanni as a model. In the, in the script for that he sent out, he included a 45 RPM single that I've made in Belgium of... Uh, recording of Inri Don Giovanni. And he'd kind of written about Inri Don Giovanni as a musical process which showed that a piece of music could be firmly planted in the 18th century and be very faithful to Mozart at the same time that it was was obviously a piece of, um, of experimental music. a kind of sampling kind of piece. So the, so this was a model not only for his film thinking, because although the film was set in late 17th century, you know, it was basically about Thatcherism and about property and about kind of relationships. So in Ray Don, Don Giovanni was very important. And when we talked about the, the music, he said, you know, he wanted the music to be based on late 17th century English music, obviously, because that's when the film was set. So since I've been a so-called Purcell scholar, and then there were the, the, the instructions were there were the draftsman made 12 drawings of, of, of the house, and each, each drawing would be identified by a particular piece of music. So that wasn't a situation where you say, well, so-and-so does this and has this conversation, there's a certain amount of anger or there's a certain amount of seduction going on. I want the soundtrack, which reinforces those dramatic situations. It was 12 drawings, 12 pieces of music, and each drawing was made over a period of six days. So I decided there would be a musical parallel between a blank page or the first marks and the completed... um, 
completed drawing. So it was selecting 12 pieces of Purcell, reconstructing them, you know, sampling them and reorganizing them and building them up in kind of six layers. The actual music of the music and the power of the music and the potential of the music and the kind of emotional content of the music immediately kind of took over from the commissioning process and the writing. He immediately kind of corrupted his own system mm -hmm. because he kind of knew what music was having what effect mm. on what images that he was in the process of shooting while I was in the process of writing the music. Yeah. So these two things happened totally simultaneously. And that worked as a principle of working between us until uh, Drowning by Numbers, which he'd already shot and wanted different music. And then he was stuck with me and he was stuck with coming back to me as his composer. So, so that film was shot and edited before I wrote the soundtrack. Let's move on to the second half of the concert. We're skipping through years very, very quickly. Is this a change of gear again, moving moving away from films to somewhere else? Well, no, because this, this is the problem with, with you know, the Nyman Greenaway thing. You know, while I was writing, for, you know, Greenaway made quite a few films, you know, one every two years in the 80s, but I wasn't exactly kind of sitting around as a composer um, waiting to be called up and instructed by Peter Greenaway. So I was writing the first string quartet in 1985. I mean, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, the first opera in 1987. So I was, I was just being a composer who occasionally was called upon by Greenaway at the time, and then subsequently in the 90s by other directors to, um, to be a soundtrack composer. So in the early 90s, I had a commission to work with, with Uta Lempa, so I worked on this song cycle very much in collaboration with her. A friend of mine had told me about the poems of Paul Celan a few years earlier, so it seemed very obvious and appropriate to make a song cycle. Mm -hmm. I think my first song cycle of poems that Paul Celan had written basically about the Holocaust in Paris during the post-war period till he committed suicide, I think, in... 1961, and that also kind of fed back into, as a student, I'd been sent by Thurston Dart to Romania to, to collect folk music. And Paul Celan was, was born in, well, he was Romanian, I think he was born in what is possibly Ukraine now. So there was a sense in which, because of my knowledge of Romania, I sort of discovered a, a kind of Romanian strain in Salan's work that that other composers have not. So when Bert Whistle set Paul Salan, it's the kind of it's the horror and the modernity that is kind of uppermost, I think. As I say, detected this kind of rather more romantic, um still kind of harsh uh Romanian strain in, in the text and and that was the basis of the work that I that I did did with Uto. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In this last section, we speak about his film work post-Greenaway, how he found the musical voice of Holly Hunter's pianist, and finally, where the band has ended up. We're moving back to films in the concert now. Wonderland, The Claim, Gattaca, The Libertine. You're working with new directors now, so I'm interested to ask about that experience. Um, a lot on debut features, or at least films earlier in their career. How did you find that? Well... Yeah, this is all kind of post-Greenaway. So Greenaway and I kind of parted company after Prospero's books in in 1991, basically because I didn't like the way he used the music. He demanded a very specific score, and I wrote I wrote something that I think is the best soundtrack I've written, very, very intensive, and I've just re-released it on an MN Records album called Michael Nyman and the Tempest, believe it or not. So Prospero's Books did three things. It generated Prospero's Books soundtrack album. It generated an opera called Noisy Sounds and Sweet Airs. And it it ended the relationship with Peter Greenaway. But directors in the 90s seemed, seemed to want to work with me more, totally independently of, of me splitting up with, with Peter, than I had in the, in the 80s. So obviously... Um, the key film was was the piano that that came totally out of the blue when Jane Campion just happened to ring me. And 
the success of the piano as a soundtrack and as a film also came out of the blue. And then all the other directors that wanted to work with me in the 90s and more recently, but not very recently because I don't write film music anymore, were kind of post-piano. Post so they obviously knew the Greenaway films but weren't particularly attracted to that kind of music. They were attracted to the Michael Nyman who had kind of recreated himself with the soundtrack of the piano simply because the piano was not me kind of putting on a different style but was me actually getting inside the head of the Holly Hunter character mm. who in the 1850s made her own music. Uh, so I was basically writing not music for her but music for her as a composer. That's how that came about and that was a kind of softer, more poetic more lyrical musical language, which it seemed the Michael Winterbottoms and the Neil Jordans of this world were very attracted to. So I had a kind of 1990s career as a film composer that was very different from the 1980s career. And I think I wrote some really good scores. I think the, the I think Wonderland is one of the mm. best and most natural soundtracks I've written. And the end of the affair worked out to be very good in the end. So basically the, the film music in, in, in the second half of the programme is me saying, OK, I was still a film soundtrack composer uh, and the, this is a very, very, very short instant digest of some of the, some of the um, soundtracks I composed. And the Libertine, which was more or less the last soundtrack I, I composed for Lawrence Dunmore. So he, he came to me and his, his, his attitude was that he'd first discovered my music, A Z and Two Noughts, and that he kind of made up his mind that if he was ever going to make a film, he would ask me to write the soundtrack and that A Z and Two Noughts would be the kind of model and he would allow me to, you know, in, in The Libertine, he would allow me to write any kind of music I chose. And then as the film industry becomes more complicated and the more kind of yay-sayers and mostly naysayers who, especially with a, with, a, with a first-time filmmaker, would say, well, you may think that music is suitable for this film, but we don't. This becomes a sort of pain because when I sit down and write an opera, which is my equivalent as a composer of writing, uh, writing a film, making a film... Nobody kind of nobody gives you advice, and nobody instructs you what to write, <laughs> and nobody instructs you what not to write, and nobody says you can't have this kind of music, or you can't have this kind of structure, or you can't have a musical relationship between two characters that is expressed in this way rather than that way. So the freedom I, as I, that I have as a as a composer, pure and simple and it's never pure and it's never simple, it's not, al not allowed in film. And I, and I, you know, whenever I kind of 
see a film now and I think of the, you know, the pressures that are put on the soundtrack composer. I, I feel that the amount of time and energy that consumes could be better used writing other kinds of music or making my own films. You know, coming back to Witness One, I mean, over the last 10 or 15 years, I've made a lot of films, most of which are kind of street films. So I'm a street filmmaker in the sense of being the equivalent, a filmmaking equivalent of a street photographer. As a filmmaker, the musical content, the soundtracks are kind of important but passive, and the active creative process is the shooting of the film, so something like War Work. I started making that film two years ago and I'm now going to make the very, very last edit of it in, in, in a week's time. And although the images, the choice of images and the arrangement of images and the kind of relationship, all the kind of forms of imagery that, that I use from 1914-18 is constantly being shuffled around, but the music, music doesn't doesn't change at all. Now that might mean that I'm sort of supremely confident about the music or basically more interested in, in the content and relevance and reference systems of the visual images. And I'm not going to say anything either way. Moving on to last few questions, um, maybe to as we're at the end now, um, how does the, the version of the Michael Nyman band that, that may be recorded or performs war work um, differ to the one that was at the, the National Theatre right at the beginning? We're just discussing kind of producing a programme and I, I found the other day a photograph that must have been taken in the summer of 1977 of the Campiello band outside the Serpentine Gallery. And so you get this line of mus musicians with their kind of instruments kind of pretty loosely, you know, assembled, and it's all very kind of rough and ready. This is going to be contrasted with a very recent formal photograph we had taken of the band in, a, in an Italian theatre before a concert, and everyone looks very grim and very serious. <laughs> the point that people would take from juxtaposing these two photographs was that you know, everything was kind of light and and frivolous in 1977. And now the Michael Nyman band takes itself far too seriously. Performance demands in a Michael Nyman band concert are much greater now than they were in 1977. And there is, you know, obviously the content, the music has changed. But in terms of being an absolutely kind of supreme and very high energy, high involvement in the moment of performance group. I don't think anything has 
really changed and it is still a band mm. and maybe now it's it kind of is not only a kind of street band brass band but also it's kind of closer to a rock band but it's but there's the same kind of focus mm. and there's the same kind of sense that despite all the demands and despite all the skill of the musicians that the actual moment of performance is still very important we're not sitting down and just playing mm. we're not just kind of playing repertoire and this kind of goes from me as the kind of musical director and and, and pianist and that's kind of transformed and translated in some way visually and and orally to the musicians and I've been to a lot of rock concerts uh, especially in Mexico sitting where I live and I find the kind of discipline and energy and and sheer kind of passion for playing there is a kind of consistency even though when I started the Campiello band I was not really a performer and didn't really have a clue what I was doing so whatever <laughs> and I've sort of become a much better performer through playing with a Michael and I'm band and through working with these musicians also become a much better composer. They allow themselves to to make themselves open to the kind of demands that they allow themselves open to be made on them. So in terms of, you know, bowing arms and in terms of kind of uh, demands on saxophone lips and bass trombonists lips and arms you know it's uh, you know rather than a group that just sits down and performs and I, and that's something that kind of st still thrills me and and makes me want to continue performing because it's it's kind of demanding it's hard work but it's um it's very generous and um passionate hard work well long may it continue okay thanks very much Thanks to the composer for speaking to us and the music producer Sirius for making this podcast possible. For me, one of the wonders of the classical or contemporary classical world is the Michael Nyman Band, a rock band-like ensemble who have continued to bring these tour de force performances to venues such as the Barbican. Perhaps going in and out of fashion, but never short of razor-sharp melodies, pounding rhythm and energy. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. We're here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.